Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 20th, 2024, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment, but it's pretty damn alarming how many places around the world are under aerial bombardment at this moment. We're going to be reviewing a few on this rant. First and foremost, Gaza, of course, now into more than three months of massive, relentless Israeli bombardment. I'm going to briefly read a couple of media accounts. First, this from PBS NewsHour of January 18th, a story entitled American Doctor Who Worked in Gaza Describes Dire Humanitarian Crisis Civilians There Face. This is uh, Dr. Seema Jilani of the International Rescue Committee. I'm going to quote some of her words. Now, a few rants ago, I objected to the use of atrocity pornography on social media as exploitative and desensitizing. Well, this isn't an image, just words. And I am giving an appropriate trigger warning here. So it isn't just popping up as you scroll through cute cat videos. This is some heavy, disturbing stuff, and if you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead by a minute or so. Quote from Dr. Seema Jilani of the International Rescue Committee to PBS NewsHour, January 18th. In my first three hours of working at Al-Aqsa Hospital, I treated a one-year-old boy with a bloody diaper, and his right arm and right leg had been blown off. There was no leg below the diaper. He was bleeding into his chest. I treated him on the ground because there were no beds available. And when the orthopedic surgeon came to wrap his stumps up to stop the bleeding, I would have imagined in the U.S. this would have been a straightforward case that went immediately to the operating room because of the severity, a stat case. And instead, the impossible choices inflicted on the doctors of Gaza have made it such that he wasn't the emergency of the day. There was a waiting list, and the operating room was already full with other, more pressing cases. So I asked myself, what's more pressing than a one-year-old without an arm, a leg, who's bleeding into his chest and choking on his blood? There was an 11-year-old child who was brought in, and she was burnt so much that her face was charred and black, and we did not have any information on her parents, whether they were alive or dead. The emergency room was permeated with the smell of burnt flesh, and I just kept thinking 
that this is one of so many of a generation of orphans that are going to be born into Gaza, burnt and amputated, and with no life to speak of, no access to services, no family members, and it will stay with me for all my days. End quote. And this is just one of the few hospitals that remains functioning at all in the Gaza Strip. Most have been put out of operation entirely at this point. But even if the bombing starts to wind down, as is now being broached by Israel, so much damage has been done that the real nightmare may be just beginning. Aid workers fear that deaths from starvation and waterborne disease, such as cholera, may overtake those from direct injuries from the bombing in the coming weeks. I read from the new humanitarian website, January 18th, quote, While there hasn't been an official declaration, famine is already taking place in parts of the Gaza Strip, UN officials said this week. It has arrived with unprecedented speed as Israel has laid total siege to the enclave for more than three months and carried out a massive bombing campaign that has destroyed much of the infrastructure needed to sustain life. The deliberate starvation of civilians is a war crime, and the allegation that Israel is creating the risk of death from starvation in Gaza is central to the case being brought by South Africa at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide. End quote. A glimmer of hope is that also January 18th, same day the story ran, there was a thousands-strong rally in Tel Aviv calling for a Gaza ceasefire as the only means of securing the release alive of the surviving hostages, which is obvious. The rally was organized by pro-coexistence groups in Israel, including the Standing Together Movement and Women Wage Peace. So that's encouraging. And if you're looking for Israelis to support, well, this would be them. But of course, there's all of this warranted concern that Gaza will prove to be the flashpoint for a wider war throughout the region or even the world. For the past week and a half, the U.S. and U.K. have been launching airstrikes against targets in Yemen in response to attacks on Red Sea shipping by the Houthi forces, in turn initiated in response to the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. Several have been killed in these U.S. and British airstrikes, seemingly mostly Houthi fighters, but this is certainly not helping the situation in a country already suffering from what was probably, before Gaza erupted, the world's worst humanitarian crisis, following now a full decade of war. Understandably, but I must emphasize not correctly, there has been a tendency to rally around the Houthis and their attacks on shipping on social media because it is seen as resistance against the bombardment of Gaza, even though at this point 
The Houthis seem to be attacking shipping vessels generally, and not just Israeli ones. These social media cheerleaders seem not to have thought this through. The closing of the Red Sea shipping route and forcing ships to go around the Cape of Good Hope is going to jack up the price of grain and lead to more hunger in Africa and in Yemen itself and elsewhere around the world. And the Houthis are not heroic freedom fighters. They are ugly clerical reactionary authoritarians responsible for many crimes against the Yemeni people, including, just one small example, the cleansing of the last of the indigenous Yemeni Jews from the country. Just because you didn't hear about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Listen to our podcast, Requiem for the Yemeni Jews, April 13th, 2021. I'll also point out that many of the stupid memes I'm seeing about this say things like, thank you, Yemen. Uh, The Houthis are not Yemen. Media reports generally refer to them as the Houthi rebels. Even though they have for the past years controlled the capital, Sana'a, They are not the internationally recognized government of Yemen. So even if you want to cheer them on, which is not a good idea in any case, please don't refer to them as Yemen. Yemen is a country. The Houthis are an armed faction, and at best a de facto government that controls much, but by no means all, of the national territory just to clear that up. And, of course, the Houthis are backed by Iran in the regional great game. And Iran is also very much at issue in Iraq, where things are, again, rapidly escalating. So follow this succession of events. A drone strike on January 4th targeted a Baghdad base of the Popular Mobilization Forces, one of the several Iran-backed militias operating in the country, basically as a paramilitary extension of Iraq's official security forces. Two commanders were killed in the strike, the latest in a series of U.S. attacks on these militias that began after one of these militia factions, launched a drone attack December 26th on an airbase in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan in the north of the country that wounded three U.S. service members, one of them critically. Then on January 16th, four days ago, as I speak, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps carried out a ballistic missile attack on Erbil that killed at least four civilians. Not a strike from an Iran-backed militia within Iraq, but an actual ballistic missile attack from Iranian territory across the border. The Revolutionary Guards said the strike hit an Israeli spy headquarters in Erbil, which is unlikely. The Iraqi government has condemned both 
the U.S. airstrikes and the Iranian retaliation. And uh, note this, an Iraqi military official on January 15th denied reports of a deployment of more U.S. troops to the country, asserting that Baghdad does not need foreign forces. CBS News reported the previous day, January 14th, that 1,500 troops from the New Jersey National Guard are being sent to Iraq and Syria to join the U.S.-led coalition established to fight ISIS. This would constitute the largest reserve deployment out of New Jersey since 2008. CBS cited the state's Governor Phil Murphy as saying the troops were being mobilized for Operation Inherent Resolve, the anti-ISIS campaign, but the report was refuted by Major General Tassin al-Kafaji, the head of Iraq's security media cell, a body that officially cooperates with the U.S.-led coalition to counter online disinformation, <laughs> now being used to counter what he is claiming is uh, online disinformation from CBS News. <laughs> all pretty ironic. Eh? I'm sorry to laugh because it's all so grim, but it's also kind of amusing in a perverse way. Kafaji stressed that Iraq, quote, does not need any foreign forces, and the presence of the global coalition is limited to providing advice, training, and security information, end quote. Iraq's Prime Minister, Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, announced earlier this month that the Iraqi government is preparing, quote, to permanently end the presence of the international coalition forces in Iraq, end quote. As if uh, CBS News is to be believed, the U.S. is preparing to send more troops to Iraq. There's around uh, 2,500 U.S. troops currently in Iraq and some 900 in Syria, where the U.S. has also been carrying out strikes on Iran-aligned factions. We'll get to Syria shortly. But uh, first, note the exquisite irony of the Iraq situation. U.S. troops are being mobilized, if the report is true, in the ostensible guise of the anti-ISIS mission, in which the U.S. had been in a de facto alliance with the Iranian-backed militias. But, of course, now the troops are pretty obviously being sent to Iraq to counter those same Iranian-backed militias, which the U.S. is now de facto at war with. In spite of the fiction of an anti-ISIS mission that has to be the anti-ISIS mission, a secondary consideration of Washington at this point, at best. So Iraq is being treated as a pawn in the great game by the U.S. and Iran alike. Okay, Syria. Well, first, the U.S. has been bombing Iran-backed militias there as well including some of the same ones operating in Iraq, which back in October started launching drone attacks on U.S. positions in Syria in response to U.S. support for Israel in the Gaza bombardment. Israel itself, which has for years been carrying out intermittent attacks on Iran-backed forces in Syria, has been stepping up these airstrikes since October. And on December 25th, a senior commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps 
was killed in a presumed Israeli airstrike near Damascus. Amid all this, Russia and the Assad regime are continuing to carry out intermittent airstrikes on rebel-held Idlib province in the northwest of the country, killing civilian villagers and effectively disrupting the olive harvest there this past autumn, and most horrifically, bombing water-pumping infrastructure, leaving farmers without irrigation for fields already parched by a years-long drought, and deepening hunger and suffering caused by over 12 years of war and the devastating earthquake that struck the region just about a year ago, which it still hasn't recovered from. To the east of Idlib is Rojava, the region of the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in northeast Syria, the Rojava Kurds being effectively allied with the U.S., just as the Kurds under different leadership in Iraq are, most of the U.S. troops in Syria are embedded in the ranks of the Rojava Kurds. But the Rojava Kurds are also being periodically bombed by Washington's NATO ally, Turkey. The Rojava Autonomous Administration reports that since the start of the year, Turkey has carried out over 70 attacks on its territory, targeting oil facilities, power plants, positions of the Autonomous Zone security forces, as well as civilian villages and homes. Again, just because this isn't making headlines doesn't mean it isn't happening. And finally, Jordan is the latest country to carry out airstrikes on Syria this past week. At least 10 people, including children, were reported killed in Jordanian airstrikes in Syria's southwest January 16th. Several homes were destroyed in Suweida province, near the border with Jordan, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which has noted several Jordanian strikes and border raids in recent weeks targeting Iran-backed militias apparently in the guise of narcotics enforcement, as these militias are believed to be behind a surge in drug smuggling into the kingdom of Jordan, particularly of the amphetamine Captagon. On January 7th, the Human Rights Observatory reported that five presumed smugglers were killed and 15 others arrested by Jordanian forces after clashes on the border. During the operation, large amounts of captagon and hashish were apparently confiscated. So, just over the past weeks, Syrian territory has been bombed by the U.S., Israel, Russia, Turkey, and Jordan, five different countries, as well as the Assad regime itself, which makes six. And as we've noted many times before, the Kurdish people are in a very interesting and historically tragic situation because their traditional territory is divided between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And they've been, the Kurdish people and their political leadership have been divided into factions along the lines of rival nation states. 
Turkey gets along with the Kurdish authorities in Iraq, more or less, but definitely not those in Syria, because they are allied with the PKK, the Kurdish rebels operating on Turkish territory. Whereas Iran doesn't get along with the Kurdish authorities in Iraq, because they're cooperating with the U.S., which is allied with them against ISIS, and earlier against Saddam Hussein. So, around it goes. And this situation is mirrored, as we shall see, at the other end of Iran, hundreds of miles to the east, where, as you may have noticed, Iran and Pakistan just traded airstrikes across their border. Iran's Revolutionary Guards on January 17th carried out missile and drone strikes against targets of the Jaish al-Adl militant group in Pakistan's Balochistan province, apparently killing two children in border villages. This was apparently in response to the recent deadly suicide bombing apparently carried out by ISIS in Iran. This took place January 3rd in the city of Kerman, targeting a memorial gathering for Revolutionary Guards Commander Qasim Soleimani four years after his killing by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. So, interesting that the U.S. and ISIS both saw him as an enemy, although he had also been a de facto ally of the U.S. against ISIS before ISIS was largely defeated in Iraq. So one day after Iran carried out strikes on Pakistani territory, Pakistan retaliated with strikes on villages in Iran's Sistan and Baluchistan province, reportedly killing seven, including four children. Pakistan code-named the retaliatory strikes Operation Marg Bar Sarm Achar, which translates from the Urdu as death to insurgents, and supposedly targeted positions of the Balochistan Liberation Army, which has for years carried out a low-level insurgency in Pakistan. And the Baloch people and their homeland, Baluchistan, like the Kurds and their homeland, Kurdistan, are divided between nation-states, with rival factions on opposite sides of the border. Jaish al-Adl, or the Army of Justice, seems to be a militant Sunni group, which is mostly made up of ethnic Baloch, And it appears that Pakistan at least is allowing it to operate out of its territory for its insurgency in Iranian Balochistan, whereas the BLA, Balochistan Liberation Army, seems to be more of an ethno-nationalist Baloch group, and it appears that Iran at least is allowing it to operate out of its territory for its insurgency in Pakistani Balochistan. And around it goes. And let's recall, by the way, that Pakistan has the nuke. And of course, Iran is seeking the nuke, which makes this development really 
terrifying. Now, until this recent episode, Tehran and Islamabad have at least made a pretense of getting along with each other despite allowing rebel groups to operate out of their respective territories to wage insurgencies in the other country. Again, that's why they call it a great game. But let's hope that this one does not escalate because that could turn out to be really, really bad. And I just want to point out yet again, in April of 1937, the Spanish town of Guernica was bombed by Nazi warplanes, backing up the Spanish fascist caudillo Francisco Franco, much as Russian warplanes are today backing up Bashar Assad. Some hundreds of people were killed in the bombing of Guernica, estimates vary. It was one of the first massive aerial bombardments in history, and it shocked the world. Immortalized in a painting by Picasso, which now hangs in facsimile at the United Nations as a reminder of the horrors of war. Yet today, what happened at Guernica is a daily occurrence in Gaza. And on a somewhat lesser scale, a near-daily occurrence in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, with now Iran and Pakistan, possibly next, and various other places around the world. I've only spoken in this rant about those cases more or less related to the Gaza conflict. I haven't even mentioned the various horrific conflicts now nearly pushed from the headlines entirely. Ukraine, Burma, Sudan, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, intermittent airstrikes on the strongholds of rebels or so-called bandits in Nigeria. These latter West African conflicts winning practically no coverage at all from either the mainstream or alternative press just for local media within those countries and specialty sites like the New Humanitarian and Counter Vortex. A Guernica literally every day while we wait for war, as if the world were not already at war. And the coverage, when indeed there is any coverage by mainstream or alternative press, as well as the spewing of social media partisans, is overwhelmingly concerned with how the factions line up in the great game, not the civilians being impacted on the ground. So we've been very busy following all of this, as we do obsessively on the counter-vortex, trying to cover these conflicts with an emphasis on people, not states, and principle rather than campism. I was trying to hope that 2024 would give us a little bit less material to blog and rant about, but this is predictably proving not to be so. We'll stay on top of it, at least until such time as the Lower East Side itself is coming under aerial bombardment. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. 
patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.